Hi, this is Maria. And this is Chad. And this is Drinking in Public History, where we talk a little bit about public history topics and drink while we're at it. Woot, woot. So how are you today, Chad? It's a little cloudy. It was raining earlier, but it's a good day to drink and talk history. Is there ever really a day that it, it's not good to drink and talk history? You can probably think of a couple of days. <laughs> but today is a good day for that. That's for sure. Yeah, I think also happy Pride Week, everyone. That's our Pride Month, excuse me. Happy Pride Month. So this is LGBTQ History Month. And with that in mind, that's determining our theme for the next few episodes. And today we're going to start out with just a basic LGBTQ history, which is slightly dicey, in my opinion. As an LGBTQ person, I identify as a gay man and a historian. And I'm not a gay historian. So I happen to be a gay man who is a historian. I am not a gay historian. So I have dabbled in gay history, LGBTQ history. I will be quite honest, I'm more up on the gay male history than I am on lesbian history, transgender history, non-binary history. But that's because that's how I identified. So I was looking for me in history. But yeah, we're going to go over all of that. We're going to talk about some different things today. Today's just going to be like a rambling drinking day. How do you feel about that, Maria? Uh, Good, because like you said, it's a dicey topic. I myself identify as a cis heterosexual female. So it's a subject and topic that I stand to learn a lot from and really just take in this history. So you were saying you're not a gay historian, and I'm very much super specialized in, if I'm looking at a particular history, it's like Borderlands history with the U.S. and Mexico. Which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's my topic of interest, and very specifically like migration patterns and things like that. So both for the Spanish invasion and after. Which also fascinating, right? Like how much does that change? And that actually plays a little bit into what we're going to be talking about today. But before we proceed any further with all the seriousness, what are you drinking today? I am drinking. I'm so excited that I found this. This is from last year's edition, but it's the Barefoot Spritzer Pride 2020 Limited Edition. It's like this really small, cute can with like rainbows all over it. And I was very, I was telling Chad before we started recording that I am very much out of my depth, right? So I was like, let's look for gay wineries. Let's really sink into it this theme for this month and see where I can find ways to support. And there were a few that hopefully I'll be able to get wine from later for the later episodes. But I wanted to start out with this one because I read that Barefoot, the company actually does and has supported the LGBTQ plus community for a while. And then of course, look at the little rainbows. They're just so cute. It's adorable. And they're so sparkly. I'm sorry. I can't get over that. You're good. You're good. Something that most people wouldn't know about me is that I love, if I actually did drag, every outfit that I would have would be sequined because I love glitter and glittering and sparkles and like, seriously. And I even came up with my drag name, which would be Shanita Bottom. <laughs> nice. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to launch into it? Wait, what are you drinking? So I'm not going to say the wine, but I am drinking a chilled Pinot Grigio. Yeah, it makes me feel like she, even though it's probably not, but I forgot to get orange juice and champagne for mimosas. So that will be in a future because 
hello. Brunch and mimosas is like a gay staple. So that'll be for one of the later ones. But yeah, and I'm also interested to hear what kind of wineries you find because I might be interested. But yeah, so Pinot Grigio chilled because that's how you drink your Pinot Grigio. That's how I drink it. And I white wine, fancy. It's very fancy. All right, you want to jump in? Let's do this. So we are, as Chad said, we're talking with a very intro to LGBTQ plus history in mind because this is a public history podcast. I know that my interest is very much in how is LGBTQ plus history presented in the public history? What constitutes as public history? This, which is a question I think we've asked quite a number of times. What does public history And how like? does it intersect? Does it intersect? What ways in which it intersects? And I think that's actually more difficult to answer than the act. And so in my opinion, LGBTQ history is really nebulous anyway. I'm not a big Foucault fan, so anybody who's an academic has probably heard of Foucault. He is the bane of my existence because just about every single class I had to read Foucault and he is not easy to read. Now, he is in the LGBTQ spectrum. I haven't studied up on him, so I don't know how he identifies, but I know that he's in the spectrum. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. All this talk about Foucault and yet not... If y'all are not academics and don't know about Foucault, please do not start any <laughs> your study in this area with Foucault. You have to build up to Foucault. He's quite difficult. But yeah, so one of the things that Foucault was known for saying is that to say someone from the past is bisexual, to say someone from the past is gay, lesbian, is quite anachronistic. And I would actually, that's the word that I saw from the quote that he said, which is anachronistic. And I would actually agree with that. I have a really hard time as a gay man looking back on history because my area of study typically is medieval English women in particular. But there's there's a lot of stuff when you're talking about sexuality back in the day. So what most people don't realize, and I have this written down because I did actually do research for this. In 1869, that's when we first hear the word homosexual. It was printed in a German pamphlet anonymously, but we know the author is Karl Maria Kurtbenny. He's an Austrian-born dude. Did a little research on him as well. Not super important, but if you want to study him, his name is Karl Maria hyphenated, Karl Maria Kurtbenny. And he changed his name from something else to Kurtbenny. And I should have like, whatever. He, he, I was not interested in Kurtbenny. I was more interested in the word homosexual. So we see in the world the word homosexual in 1869, where I remember seeing it, though, for the first time. So I didn't I actually didn't know about Carl Maria. I knew about 1886, where it's used by the psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing in his book Psychopathia Sexualis or Psychopathia Sexualis, however you want to if you want to be all she she whatever or if you want to um, pronounce it correctly, whatever you want to do. So that was in 1886, and that's when I was aware of it. So he uses it, and that book apparently was super popular, both with the layman and with people who were into psychology, psychiatry at the time. And so that's when it really started to like kick off. Now, the issue is currently most LGBTQ people don't actually like the word homosexual because it's so clinical. So queer has come back into use that started happening in the 1990s. 
I myself, and I think I might have mentioned this in another episode, I haven't I have a love-hate relationship with queer because when I was growing up, when I was growing, queer was used as a pejorative. And so when it started to be reclaimed, it was it was rough for me to hear that as something positive. But I will say, while I don't identify as queer, I love that we've reclaimed it because queer now can encapsulate so many different people and so many different identities. And that's what I love about that word. So I'm really glad that we as a community captured that word again and recaptured it and brought it to ourselves. So again, 1869 in a German pamphlet by Austrian-born Karl Maria Kurt Benny, that's when we see it, but it became popularized. Heterosexual and homosexual became popularized. Sorry, I'm already few drinks in, but that was in 1886. So to go back a little bit, and this, this is why I have such a problem with it, because it was only in 1886 that we really started using this term on a regular basis. So to say anybody was gay, lesbian, homosexual, anything like that before 1886 is really, for me, is slightly strange because sexuality in medieval times was very, what's the word I'm looking for? It very much was on a spectrum. There were behaviors that were appropriate and inappropriate, but nobody was really like, oh, sexuality, like you're a homosexual, burn at the stake. So this is where I want to go. So let's explain what I mean. So you have the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks and the Romans are known for a lot of stuff. Romans are known to be like party people. Really what we're looking at with the Greeks and the Romans is it wasn't What we know today is homosexuality. It was younger and it was okay. So you had an older man, he may be married, and he's helping along this young man who's like in puberty times. But that relationship was not expected to last after the young man really moved out of his, his teens. And that's the same thing with the Romans as well. So that was really well known with the Greeks. But with the Romans, again, they planted themselves in a lot of different ways. My LGBTQ history is based very much on Western European history. So I don't know a lot about what was happening in Asia at the time, what was happening across the Asian steppe, which is in Russia right now. I don't know what was happening in South America with the indigenous or with Africa with the people who lived there. I am very focused, and again, this was because I was trying to find, when I was doing this research, originally and what I'm familiar with, I was trying to find my history. And my history wasn't everybody at the time. It was very specifically white and Western. And since then I've learned a little bit more. My specialization is again is women in medieval history. So of course I keep getting drawn back to that. So I apologize for all of those who know way more about Greek and Roman history than I do. And y'all are like, this dude is fuck. Shit all about this which is probably true. But again, what I want to point out is that there, with the Greeks and the Romans, the relationship wasn't necessarily two equal men. It was a man with a younger man bringing him into manhood. It was a way of teaching him how to come into manhood. Now that might sound a lot like pederasty and it's not, because again, the relationship wasn't expected to last. And it wasn't abusive. So this is the other thing like people need to get. It wasn't abusive. This was part of the culture. So let's not put our modern views on the past, which is also why I have a problem with using homosexual, gay, bisexual, like all of that, because it didn't quite 
fit. So if we move past Greeks and Romans, apparently a little research that I did, and it's a book by Colin Spencer called Homosexuality in History, will have this put in. It's an older book. I like it because it's pretty comprehensive. It was 1995 that it was published. So it is old, and I'm not saying it's not, but I don't know that there's a whole bunch of new scholarship in the things that he's talking about. So when we're talking about the Celts, I like to say Celts because I'm a contrarian, and that's just what I do. So, well, you know what? We can look it up now if we want to, but I'm not going to. Okay. So apparently with the Celts and with some of the barbarian tribes, German, Germanic barbarian tribes, there was a relationship of equals with warriors and whatnot. This is something that I think also gets misplaced a lot. Like we, we don't think about pirates being on ships for a really long time. I think there's fluidity. So we talk today about the fluidity of sexuality. And I think we really need to take that fluidity like far back and not put any labels on it. Just know that sexuality was fluid and you did what you did with who you had because of the situation, which is very different than it is today. So really one of the biggest things, and you can see this throughout history in most of the different patriarchal societies, and I'm very much specifically pointing to the patriarchy in very much Western society as well, which is it's not necessarily that you're having sex with a man, it's your role in having sex with a man. So who's the one, and this may be a little bit more descriptive than most people want two cups in. So who's doing the penetrating and who's being penetrated, essentially? And that could mean orally, that could mean anally, that's really the thing. So if you were an adult man who was being penetrated, that's an issue. If you were an adult man doing the penetrating to another adult man, eyebrows are going to be raised but at least you're not effeminate. Oh, like, yeah. You're not yeah. taking the woman's role, and I put quotes around that. You're not playing the woman in sex, right? So I looked at Merriam-Webster because really the biggest defining things throughout medieval rena and Renaissance time period in Europe was sodomy. We still hear about sodomy laws. They're, they're much more specific in the United States. But when we're talking about sodomy, and I think people associate it with anal sex, currently, which makes sense. But sodomy is highly inclusive. Most people don't realize that sodomy has a very, it, it doesn't mean anal sex, period. It means anal sex and or oral sex. And it could be with either sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did not know that. Right. So technically, Maria, if you had an affair with a woman, you could be committing sodomy. Interesting. Okay. If you were performing oral sex. That would also apply to heterosexual couples though, right? So it, it has nothing to do with cis or heterosexual or any kind of... It was crazy when I first realized it. And I think that most people don't realize that. So when you're reading something in context of Renaissance or medieval, one of the things to keep in mind, or, or puritanical, one of the things to keep in mind is that what we're looking at is anal or oral sex, and it doesn't matter who it's between. So these sodomy laws were to keep not gay men necessarily, although they were targeted at gay men, but when you call them sodomy laws, and when you look at the laws themselves, most of the laws are fairly broad, just like sodomy itself. Now they're targeted at gay men. 
Those are moving to the wayside, at least in the United States, but there are some states, and I didn't take a look, but there are some states that still have sodomy laws. Now, sodomy was originally based on the um, story from the Christianity about Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they visited, when Lot and his male guests visited Sodom, it was the male citizens of Sodom who wanted to have intercourse with Lot's male guests. And again, it is typically referencing, used or referencing for anal sex, in particular between two men. So there's a lot of stuff that happens, a lot of things. And I could do the countdown and go through, but one of the things that I like to include whenever I'm talking about LGBTQ history in a very broad sense is the Holocaust. A lot of people, and we should be focusing on Jewish people during the Holocaust in the many, many, because that's, that is exactly what the Holocaust was towards. Those concentration camps housed many other people though. And one of those groups, a couple of those groups were gay men. And they had to wear an upside down pink triangle. So if you were ever wondering what the upside down pink triangle meant, that's or where it came from, that's what it is. All of these emblems were had to be worn either on the right side, the chest, or the back when you were in Nazi occupied territory. And when you were sent to a camp, it was usually on your right, on your right shoulder or your right arm. If you were known to be a gay man, then you had an upside down pink triangle. What I didn't realize is that they loved the idea of blending everything together. So we know that it's an equilateral, it's two equilateral triangles to make the Star of David, right? One upright, one upside down. If you happen to be a gay Jewish guy, then you had an upright gold triangle. Yeah. And the upside down portion of the triangle was then pink. So oh, let wow. people know that you were gay and Jewish. Oh my gosh. It's one of those things where it's important to go and remember and honor the memory of those who were brutally murdered during the Holocaust. And at the same time, there's just like that full body chill of just knowing this is what they went through and what they had to face. And just the level of, yeah, the level of hatred in that is just, oh, I can't. There's a quick book. It's very thin. I can't remember when I picked it up. I, I can find it later when you're talking, but it's called Men with the Pink Triangle. I own it. It's really thin, very educating. Yeah, there's, there's some really interesting stuff out there. There's a couple plays. One play is called Bent that I think they actually made into a movie. So there, there's some, so there is some knowledge out there about that. So I, I always like to include the Holocaust and I hate to say like to include, but I want it's important to include it. It's a very pivotal point in history. It's really as it pertains to moving into the, t- the 20th century. And it, I think that that's the thing when we're talking about it. I think you can look at the concentration camps in Nazi Germany as really attacking marginalized communities across the whole, going after, quote unquote, the gypsies, going after lesbians who had to wear an upright black triangle. So there's a lot of stuff that happened during the Enlightenment. There's a lot of stuff that happened during the Victorian period, and I'm not taking any of that away. Also, the lived experience of people in different areas, vastly different, even to this current day. So when we talk about LGBTQ history, sometimes it becomes about local history, sometimes it can become about national history. It's very hard to define LGBTQ history as a whole. Now, there are people that we can look to and say, these are LGBTQ people, but what is the lived experience? So in the United States, one of the most pivotal points 
it's not the only riot that occurred, but it's the most popular riot and it's looked to constantly. And that was in 1969, the Stonewall riots that happened in New York City at the Stonewall Inn, which does currently exist. It still survives. The outside looks the same, the inside not the same. And it is marked as a national historic landmark. So when we're talking about public history, this is one place that you can actually go. And as a LGBTQ person in the United States, you can go and say this place was a turning point for the rights in in the United States for LGBTQ people. There's a lot to do. There's still a lot of work, but that's one place that we can turn to. There are no museums. Like when we're talking about museums, when we're talking about historic sites, that kind of thing. So keep in mind, this is a landmark. It's not a historic site. So the inside was able to be completely changed. The outside has to stay the same because it's a landmark, which is different than a historic site. We can get into like that's for the people who are listening. There is a difference. We're not going to get into that because that's so minute. And I apologize that I even brought it up, but it's true. So that's really been the turning point, right? That's identified. Now, it's not the only riot that occurred. There are other riots that occurred. A friend of mine made me aware of two situations that were out in California that occurred around the same time, but they're not as well known as the Stonewall riots. One of the great things about Stonewall riots, this is one of the things that I love. There was a recent movie, and I cannot remember the name of it. I never watched it because they had a a cis white man throw the first stone. Oh, I remember about that whole hearing about that, but yeah. And just for our listeners to know, that is not the case. It was not a cis white gay man who threw the first stone. It was, or who, yeah, I think it was a stone that, that was thrown. It was a person of color and a dry queen. Kudos. Marsha P. Johnson. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So that's a big thing. Then, and, and I note this, I did some research on this when I was in grad school, but I note this just because I think it's really interesting. In 1980, Dr. John Boswell, he published a book called Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. And it was pivotal in gay history and Christian history because it talks about how there has been. Now, this is highly debated to this day, okay? But what he posits is that there is evidence to show that gay couples, both male and female, were married in very early medieval era in the Christian faith. Yeah. So there's a whole book, and that's called, again, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. Now, there's another book that came out. I don't know when it came out, but it is a collection of essays, and it's about the Boswell thesis. So it's specifically about that. I also have that book because I'm a nerd. That's what we do. So where are you at? Did you know those things? Do you want to know more? What do you want to know more? Where are you at? Especially ending it on, oh yeah, there were such things as, as Christian marriages. I was like, oh, what? <laughs> I was like trying to recap. There's some things that I, I do know uh, that I have learned in the last couple of years. I've been really thankful in learning about the Stonewall riots, right? Like that in the last, I would say maybe five to 10 years has become very much of an important part of LGBTQ plus history that has been spoken about more and more. There's a reason why I was like, Marsha P. Johnson, knowing her name, knowing their name, knowing that what their contribution was, not just to Stonewall, but continuing in the movement. Exactly. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that I love about Stonewall and one of the things that I think that movie really missed is the inclusion of people of color and that it was a person of color and that it was a drag queen who threw the first, that it, that to me, that's really important because that's inclusive of the LGBTQ community. And in my opinion, the LGBT community isn't always as inclusive as it should be. But I love that that can be a turning point for everyone. This is a person who was literally marginalized by potential all identities that they identify as, right? And they're the one who started the Stonewall riot. Yeah, the intersections of Marsha's entire being, right? There were so many different ways of their existence. And then to be this, I always go back to the same thing, to have the a lot of people say to have the stones, but I always think to have a set of ovaries to just be able to stand up and being marginalized, being in 1969, like that is not, there's still very much the dealings of segregation. There's so much, nothing's really changed since then, but, and then to just be like, fuck it, I've had enough. And just, whew, like that you could still feel like this power, this immense sense of like, just, they were a force. They were a force. And you feel that force. And and it's interesting because it is one of those, they are a person in a situation where it's almost like a lot of what, what I deal with, like in terms of borderland history, especially I tend to look at indigenous identity in descendants of indigenous peoples who have also had to either be forced into marriages with colonizers or chose to be in unions with colonizers. But it's that like I that feeling of ancestry. There's a lot, there's a lot of conversation in borderland communities or people who identify as mestizo or mixed heritage of your ancestors ancestors are speaking to you and through you in how you act and what you do. And so it's it was 1969. I don't, like I said, I identify as cis and heterosexual and female. And even I came up, whoa, like just the feeling of it's this, just this incredible awe and power in, in that moment. And like the way that, that moments before that moment and the, the moments after just everything culminating into that decision. And then to continue with momentum, a lot of people have an outburst and then they're, oh my gosh, what did I do? What did I get myself into? And there's a lot of room for regret that can happen afterwards. And yet to still continue with, we're still going to keep pushing forward. This is the beginning of being heard, of being recognized, of being respected, because that's really what Stonewall was about. It was about the police going into a place that was known for being a place where people who were LGBTQ can, where they can go and they can feel safe, but raids were frequent. It was one of the things that I saw when I was doing the research is that the Stonewall Inn was known for those who were marginalized, even in that marginalized community. So transvestites, drag queens, effeminate men, you had this collection of people who were in a known hangout. And so for me, Stonewall Riot is this, again, as you said, this intersectionality of, of all of that. And these people were not rich. Like that's the other thing as well, right? We're not the, the rich society that could buy off the cops and all of that. This is it very much brings to mind one of the classes I remember being a part of was a home movies class. And we actually discussed LGBTQ home movies. And it was really interesting. There was, 
Yeah, I'm really, I want to say, I do have that DVD. I don't remember exactly which home movie it was, but I will try and find it. But there was this one home movie in particular where it was a party. It was a cocktail party and it, everybody who was in there was gay or lesbian. And it was this like quiet party in this apartment in the 1950s, I want to say, like 1960s. And everybody who was in it, most people were white. I think the majority of them were white. And they were like in this, in these really nice like suits in lovely outfits and being very openly gay, but behind closed doors because they're still gay, right? Like they, you can't go out and flaunt that. But the difference, right? Like you have folks who are having cocktail and dinner parties in their own home can afford to. And then you have Stonewall. We have a place where, like you said, the marginalized within the marginalized. You have uh, homeless people, you have drag queens, you have those who are hustlers, you know, who are living on the streets and, and sex workers making their living doing that. And those are all marginalized people. And, and that speaks a lot to the way that history is moved forward today, even, right? Like a lot of, and I will say this from my, my cis-hetero standpoint, I know that there's a lot of folks who are cis-hetero identify as LGBTQ as being a certain way. Like you were talking about mimosas and brunch and very queer eye kind of thing. That's not. The LGBTQ plus community is so encompassing. It's so vast and it's so, it's everybody, like every possible. And with that in mind, I do want to, I want to bust a couple. I know most of the people who are listening already know this, but I I do want to bust this up. I want to throw some things out there. There is this idea that gay white men, cis gay white men are rich. And that's actually not the case. Most of the, your LGBTQ community are going to fall just above poverty or in poverty. Of course, if you remove white from that, the statistics become staggering, right? So you would be amazed by that. Domestic abuse, the domestic partner abuse, all of that increases. Violence, just in general, is, is the, the statistics are staggering within that. Within the LGBTQ community, Alcoholism and drug abuse is rampant, homelessness, poverty, rampant, abuse, rampant, both domestic and just outside violence, that's rampant. But one of the biggest statistics, especially within LGBTQ youth, is suicide rates. That is the biggest killer, actually, with LGBTQ youth. And I think what they've done, and I could be wrong about this, so I apologize, but I think it's the age of 12 to or 14 to 22, something like that, I consider youth. And suicide is the biggest killer within LGBTQ youth. So I think that that's worth saying and mentioning like these popular ideas that we see of Will and Grace and Jack and Karen and all of these. I'm glad that we get to see them, but it does in some ways perpetuate a stereotype that cis gay men are rich. And when in fact, that's not always the case. And even the rich gay men, and there are many stories out there. So one of the eras that I forgot to exclude in my, or forgot to include in my kind of chronology is the lavender scare in the United States around the same time as the red scare. So right after World War II in the 1950s into the 1960s. And it's called the lavender scare for a reason, because they really started targeting gay men in particular, less lesbian women but more gay men. And some of the rich gay men, quote unquote, right? Those were the ones who were brought low and and imprisoned, killed, committed suicide to forego all of that. I really, again, 
as I've said before, like before 18, what was it, 1886, with the popularization by psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing, I really don't like to label people as homosexual or gay or lesbian or bisexual. Now, with that all being said, let me talk about some people who were probably on the spectrum, okay? So we have Oscar Wilde is one of the most well-known gay men. Y'all need to read some of his quotes because they're hilarious. He lived as a gay man, quite honestly, in London. He was a writer. He wrote Portrait of Dorian Gray, many other things, but that's one of the most popular ones. So check him out. He's a really interesting guy. Leonardo da Vinci is another one that probably know about. He, that one came out, what, about 20 years ago, I think, that there became evidence someone found, I want to say it was like 20, 30 years ago, something like that. And so he was put on the list of those people who are most likely on the spectrum. He was never married. So that's one thing to put him in that. The other one that I know about very well is Edward II. Now, where he falls is slightly different. He was known to have lovers of men. Whether or not he actually slept with them is one thing. I personally believe that he did, but he did have what were called favorites. And all of them have to be, yeah, and all of them have to be men of beauty and of low birth. So they were not part of the nobility. Was that intentional? Because I feel like that was very intentional. I think our guy had a thing for tradesmen. At least the way that they portrayed tradesmen back when. Even now, you know. Now, they may not have been necessarily tradesmen per se, but they were definitely of low birth. So they weren't part of the, the upper crust. And again, one of the things that you'll note, so this is Edward II of England. And one of the things that you'll note with Edward II, if you really look at it, a lot of people will say that, that he was persecuted because of his gay relationships. When you look specifically at it, it's not his gay relationships. They didn't like it. What they didn't like was that he was giving all of his attention, money, and power to a man of low birth. So if he hadn't done that and just had sex with this dude, personally, I think it would have been fine. Because you contrast that with James I of England, the sixth of Scotland, and you'll see that he also, he was well known to have gay lovers. And there's no doubt this man during banquets with international ambassadors would smack his lover on the lips with a big old nasty kiss right in front of everybody. <laughs> right. And the thing is, people were fine with that because he had children. He was married. He had children. He did his thing for the throne, so to speak. And he had these lovers, but these love and these while these lovers had power, right, to influence James was still king and he acted as king. And so people were more okay with it. And I don't want to say that's because 300 years had passed, but I don't know that's necessarily the case. I think it's because James kept his lovers where they were at. Now he may have showered them with titles and money, but he didn't give them the kind of power that Edward II did. There used to be this thing about Richard II. Henry the first and Richard the second, Richard the second, everybody's, ooh, I love Richard the second. I don't love Richard the second, FYI. But there was this thing about Richard the second potentially being gay. That's not necessarily proven. It was highly published a lot when I was younger and originally doing research, both in LGBTQ history and as an English historian. But since then, they've backed away from that. So they've walked away from calling him a homosexual because really the, the only evidence they have is that another man slept in his bed, which was a very common 
experience when that was a way of showing favoritism to someone and that wasn't necessarily when i say favoritism i don't necessarily mean like a sexual favorite just a favorite like a person who you can you trusted and considered part of your inner circle that was a way of showing them and it, again remember no ac no heaters no anything like that so you wanted someone in cold weather in a cold tower it's cuffing season man yeah <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So there's no evidence that he necessarily had sex with these men, just that they slept in his bed. So that one's a little bit dicier, but some people may know that. Alexander the Great, if we go a lot farther back, Alexander the Great, pretty much known to have nothing but homosexual relationships. So he probably was gay. He'd been married a couple of times, I think, at least once. No children that I know of, but a consistent lover, by the way. Colin Farrell, Alexander the Great. Not true. Anyway, horrible movie. Wretched. Didn't even talk about some of the best. Alexander the Great. So he's known, some people will put Madonna on the list. Not the Madonna as in like God's mother, but Madonna as in the one name singer. I don't know that I would necessarily put her on the list, but hey, whatever. Queen Christina. I think she's Queen Christina the second. No, Queen Christina. Some people will say Jane Addams and Emily Dickinson. I don't know about either one of those. Uh, Tchaikovsky is another one. Tennessee Williams was not out at the time, but if there's a lot of, if you look at his plays, there is a lot of sexual undertone in his plays. So check it out. Virginia Woolf is another one. Some people say St. Augustine. I haven't actually looked into that. So if you don't know anything about the history of the church, St. Augustine is considered one of the founders of the Christian church, big scholars. He wrote a lot of stuff, was very influential. Let's see, Socrates is another big one. Again, he's one, him, Alexander the Great, both of those are ones that I would say, I have a hard time saying they're gay because that didn't actually exist in the time period. What I would say is that their preference was probably having sex with men, right? Oh, Christopher Marlowe was another one. Some people may not know who Christopher Marlowe was. At the same time that Shakespeare was alive, you had another well-known writer. Do I want to call writer? Who, what, what would you call Shakespeare? Oh, a playwright. Playwright. Thank you. Mainly playwright, yeah. So Because he was also a poet. You can this is also four drinks in. So, so yeah, another playwright was Christopher Marlowe. A little more base, but if you look at some of his stuff, it was actually really interesting. But he died early. But yes, he was actually a, a known sodomite. Okay, what I think is interesting is, so Christopher Marlowe and Shakespeare have this like very well-known rivalry. At least, you know, how Marlowe would probably put it. And it's really funny that you're like, what was Shakespeare? Because I'm sure Marlowe is like loving wherever they are right now. Loving the, oh, you couldn't remember that I'm a playwright. So you had to ask about Shakespeare. Thanks. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, you go. So there's also thoughts about Eleanor Roosevelt. And I don't, I go back and forth on that one. I've never really read anything about Eleanor Roosevelt way outside of my time period and just very little interest. I think she's an interesting human being. I'm not saying that, but as far as studying her, meh. Bayard Rustin is another one. He was either around, I can't remember if he was around Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. I think it was Martin Luther King. But he was a known man of color during the civil rights movement. Didn't he recently pass away? And I also think there's a recently 
or maybe I just became aware of a biography about him as well. Who else? Martina Navatarova. She was what back in the 80s, 90s, the tennis phenomenon. Michelle Foucault, potentially as well. I do notice that you are missing one of the most important LGBTQ plus people for millennials at least, and that would be Lance Bass from NSYNC. <laughs> so more at history rather than so and I say that with so much love because I was a huge NSYNC fan I, I, I'm not why am I lying I'm still a huge NSYNC fan even to this day I'm just saying I'm just saying there's a lot of people out there you have King James the first of England second or sixth of Scotland excuse me you have Frederick the second also known as Frederick the Great of Prussia he's typically not mentioned a lot which is very interesting because they're very was a well-known general, great ruler for Prussia, also divided Poland up like three, four, five different. So if you don't know about those things, you should probably look into it because Poland, poor Poland. But yeah, so there, there's lots of people that you can look to that you can point back to. Now, again, you probably noticed that a lot of those were men, a lot of them were white, and a lot of that is because that's what I'm aware of. That does certainly does not mean that there are not non-binary people out there, that there are are not well-known transvestites out there actually. Or would you call, at least from what I'm aware of, is it transvestite because of the time period? Because I understood that it's people who are transgender. It really does depend. It really, so again, it's one of those things where we have these terms that we're trying to apply to the person in a time period that doesn't really fit either of those terms. So we talk about transvestites during Renaissance period, which actually became a thing in France. I don't even know what that, French are weird. If you're in France and you're listening to this, I love you, I adore you because you are weird. You've set the trend for being weird. You've always done it. But there's this weird thing that happened during like late Renaissance where men would dress as women and women would dress as men. And it like became a common thing, especially amongst the upper echelon, the upper crust. It was so bizarre and you, get references of this in, in different places. So like the oddest of all the odd is that we mentioned it before, that horrible Kate Blanchett movie where she, it's the second of the two Elizabeth movies that she did. I think it was Elizabeth, The Golden Age or some such horrible movie. Love you, Kate Blanchett. If you're listening to this, I adore you. I'm a, a big fan. I would love to meet you. We should totally do mimosas. And that was a wretched movie. <laughs> Just adding that. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. That was not a good movie. And I love Elizabeth II. But yeah, there's a bit of a scene with one of the guys. He's a French guy and he's dressed up as a woman. FYI, not the right guy in the right family. So there was actually one of the boys of Catherine de Medici who practiced transvestite. Transvest, sorry, four drinks in. My apologies to everyone that I cannot pronounce anything and I'm slurring my words, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's awful. Who can understand you? But the, again, this is one of the reasons why one of the things, so, oh, there's this woman that I, so when I was doing some research for this, I found on YouTube, this woman, let me see if I can find her. She was really amazing. And I highly recommend anybody look her up. Rowan Ellis. So R-O-W-A-N-E-L-I-S. She's based out of the UK, United Kingdom. Young woman, I think she identifies as a woman. I could be wrong. So my apologies if that's not the case. Totally look her up. She talks about Polaris in one of her YouTube videos. Polaris had no idea this existed. Like I'd heard the word, but had no idea what it was. 
So Polaris is a London secret language for LGBTQ. Oh. That is about to go out of existence. <gasps> no. Because it became popularized in the 1970s. And so if it's becoming popularized in the 1970s and mainstream, why would you continue to use it? Because people are going to know about oh, it. Yeah. Damn it, people. Right. Exactly. Just another instance of the straight world co-opting gay things. Rowan Ellis is actually amazing. I highly recommend. Look her up on YouTube. She's really great. But one of the things that she brings up, and I actually hadn't thought about this as a gay person myself, slightly shocking, to be honest, because I'm fairly introspective and love history. One of the things she talks about is that as a marginalized community for the LGBTQ queer world, right? One of the things we don't have that other marginalized communities typically do have is a relationship between the young generations and the older generation. And I thought that was a really interesting point because I'm like, yeah, that's where a lot of history gets missed because we don't, you and I have talked about oral history before and it's so important in those marginalized communities, that interaction between your grandparents and the grandchildren and the stories that get passed down. And that doesn't happen. And again, partly I think because when you and I talked about this a little bit off recording, right? Where the gay community, the LGBTQ community becomes over-sexualized. And so it becomes inappropriate for someone of my age, and I'm only 47, to be talking to someone who's 19, 18, 17, something like that. But that's where the history gets passed. And we miss that. Yeah. And the thing is that it's also remembering it's a huge difference between saying that you have a relationship, right? Like a romantic or sexual relationship versus you're just having a conversation and being like, being a part of the community. And that community is going to span a large age range. It's going to span multiple different cultural identities as well, like ethnic cultural identities. So yeah, it's very much for folks who, and this, I see this a lot in the Latine, Latinx, particularly, especially in the Mexican-American community, a lot of folks lost their connection, their second, third generation American United States. And they lose that connection because they're not encouraged. They might have a love for their grandparents, but they're not encouraged to speak a language that the, their grandparents can also relate stories to them. And that's cultural genocide that's happening. You know, really interesting because when I was, and this is a side note, and I apologize for interrupting, but I think really interesting. When I was living in Iowa, I went to school with someone. Her locker was right next to mine because of our last names. So if you alphabetize, which they always did, which was stupid, but anyway. So her locker was right next to mine. And I ended up working with her mother at the store that I worked at. And her mother knew Spanish and was always like, yeah, I feel, I feel a sense of loss because she doesn't know Spanish. And I was like, really? She doesn't know? Because I'm thinking like you live in the same house. Like I know my parents, my parents like, bitch, learn this if we knew in second language because we're white United States citizens. Sorry, I love my parents, but seriously. Anyway, but it always, like, that That was over 20 years ago. And I still remember that because it seems like such a loss. And I wonder if my schoolmate, did she have any kids? And did those kids get that reconnection? Do they know Spanish now? Do they not know Spanish? Like, it, it and that kind of speaks to what you're talking about, which also speaks to what Rowan Ellis was talking about when it comes to LGBTQ community. Like, we lose that. 
we lose. And the other thing too is, and, and this is something that people, I, I think people, when it comes to public history, it's hard to set up an LGBTQ museum because the world has done its best to move this underground, all of it. So the whole point is everything is secret. Polaris was a secret language. You could speak it in, in public because nobody knew. It was a way for you to be able to identify and talk about things that the mainstream world didn't know about. And then in the 1970s, as Rowan Ellis mentions in her YouTube, it becomes a joke for mainstream radio announcers, which is where it starts to move away. And then if you think about LGBTQ or LGBTQ identification within the mainstream media from like the 1960s through to the 1990s, really, it was a joke. One of the reasons that I can't stand that Jim Carrey, not the Jim Carrey movie, Carrie Ellis movie with Robin Hood, Men of Tights, is it's a, it's a whole movie that's patronizing for LGBTQ. I stand it. I've only seen the trailer and I'm like, I'm never watching this movie. It's, it is so offensive is not the word for me that I feel like offensive gets thrown out often. It is such a like, why would I like as a gay man, what, why would I watch this movie? And I'm not saying that there aren't gay men who watch that movie that are like, this is hilarious. For me, it just never was. I'm going to try and, and step into this part because I think this is the part, this is the part where I wanted to talk about what we're doing with this podcast this month. I do think it's interesting. So I was talking to Chad before we started recording about, I wasn't sure what my contribution would be this month. I'm like, what am I going to talk about? Intro to LGBTQ history. And I am not somebody who should say anything. I'm very conscious of where I am in terms of privilege and even just life experience. So I was like, okay, instead of going with what can I contribute in terms of knowledge, what can I contribute from the that perspective of being cis, hetero, female, having that privilege in this society. And the questions that I had. So the first thing I did, and I was telling Chad, I'm like, to Google. So the first thing I did was typed in LGBTQ public history. I was like, let's get straight to the point and see what's available in terms of public history. And there's a lot of like academic kind of scholarly approach to it. Because when you type in public history, most of the time, uh, it's, I think Google caters to the person who's studying public history. And so there's a lot of academia to it. And then I had to remember, I'm like, no, if I'm talking about public history from the perspective of an audience person, a consumer, right, of public history, what do I type in first? So I went through the varying degrees of public history. So I typed in LGBT, National LGBT Museum, because I didn't know if there was an LGBTQ uh, plus museum. I didn't know if there wouldn't be. I didn't know if maybe there were localized museums. That's another thing, right? Like, how do different communities, do they remember, do they honor, do they pay respect to LGBT history in their community, especially in areas like San Francisco, which a lot of people who are cis and hetero might think like gay people, San Francisco, if you're thinking of places and instead of just thinking like gay people in my community, which should be number one. Right. So yes, San Francisco and Castro Street, by the way, that's recently Chicago was another area where people tended to congregate. Obviously, Greenwich Village, which is where well, it was either in Greenwich Village or on the outskirts of Greenwich Village. So New York City is another big one. If we're talking 
African-American people of color in the United States. Atlanta tends to be another big one, but you also are going to find, and this is what's odd, St. Louis, oddly enough, is another Midwestern area. Minneapolis is a huge area within the Midwest that is very gay friendly. So you can find these, oh, and Dallas is another one. Dallas and Houston both kind of have large LGBTQ plus communities. So I just wanted to set that up a little bit for you for what you can see. It's not like other places don't have gay bars and whatnot. Those tend to be the most well-known. Right. And that's the thing too. So you're pointing out like Dallas, St. Louis was one that I recently, I became aware of. And I was surprised to know that is a city. Yeah. The city that has a strong LGBTQ presence. But when you said, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Because it's Missouri. Who expected anything like that from Missouri? And yet at the same time, when you read about it, it's, oh, that makes sense. And so it's funny because you said, Minneapolis like who knew and I was like I did Prince Prince is from Minneapolis Minnesota and I think if any community can even remotely bring forth that fabulousness that was Prince it was the purple prince yeah now some people might be surprised by New Orleans and that I didn't mention it there is a presence in you some of these different cities that I mentioned will actually have walking tours which is a different version of public history. We'll see some of these different, and I won't call them sites because again, they're, most cities won't have anything like the Stonewall Inn. So these would be sites that would be common or had been common at the time, but they may not still be around. So when you go on these walking tours, New Orleans does have that. To that point. So I was looking for the National Museum, a national museum, just give me a museum, I said. And Google said, this is it. So it's nationallgbtmuseum.org. And then I clicked on it. And like you said, now they're, they've just recently chosen New York as the site for the museum. Oh, really? Yeah. That's on the very first, like the splash on the page. But that's a thing. Like it's just now being constructed, like it's now being considered for construction or what have you. And then in New York. One, I think, because Rowan Ellis mentions this in a couple of her YouTube videos, that there's one potentially being considered for London. Oh, yeah. And that's, I think that was the other museum. I found one in London and I was like, that doesn't help me. <laughs> Thanks, Google. Now, if you're a UK citizen, that does help you. If you're a United States citizen, if you're Canadian, I don't know that there's anything in Canada. So that's the thing. So I'm looking up, I, I go with LGBT museum and that's what I found in terms of national. I think I look up museum and archives, right? Historical society. I, so I find historical societies, especially like San Francisco, there's a GLBT historical society. The Stonewall National Museum and Archive, which is in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I'm like, no, this can't be the, I'm pretty sure you can't gaslight me into thinking it was Florida, but it, it is. It's a museum and archive. Welcome to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? It's It's an organization that promotes understanding through preserving and sharing the culture of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and their role in society. So it's a museum dedicated through name to Stonewall, but I was like, okay, so I'm not completely losing it. Stonewall's still in New York, but this is just just another place that has that name Mm -hmm. to be able to make that direct correlation. 
Then there's the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives at the University of Southern California Library, which I was like, that's fascinating. Archives are such a great repository of public history because they can contain multitudes. It contains personal letters and oral histories and artifacts and all kinds of different things. And at the same time, it's an unfortunate part, I think, of our society that when kids are taken on field trips, they're not also taken to archives because yeah. there's so much learning that can be done and so much of value that can be and taken. What I want people to understand when it comes to archives is that you, as the common person, quote unquote, common person, you can actually make an appointment to go see things. It's, it's not just for scholars. Call up the archives and say, hey, I want to take a look at XYZ. Now, it may be several months out that you're able to be able to do, but you can actually do that. And I think that people are unaware how amazing that is. And it's it's not always famous people or really well-known people. For me, the archives- Yes, yes, know where you're going. Come yeah, on. like the archives that are, are just, they're donated because they're so well-preserved, right? Because this person didn't throw anything away for whatever reason. And a family goes, here, there's all these papers and they seem important. And an archive takes that in, if that's there in their wheelhouse. And to have that, to have access to somebody's memories, to their writings, to the, the things that they held dear. And when they're not famous and when the reason why it's being held is because it's a, like a sliver of a moment in time that pertains to maybe a movement that's going on that maybe pertains to a location, even if it's something like the founding of a city. And it's somebody's papers who is able to document that, yeah. to see what they were seeing without having a time machine. Like that's the closest to a time machine sometimes that you can get. And it's, it, it is, it's very sacred. It's a very, it's an indescribable feeling to be in that presence. It's so touching to see somebody's mem memory of that. And you can see that every once in a while on YouTube when you pull up something that you weren't expecting, right? Like you're doing and YouTube and you pull something up and it's pretty personal and you're listening to it and you're like, wow, and you're really touched. That can be what it's like to read through these things. And that's also part of the harm that occurs because there's all sorts of tricksterization, if you will. And I just made up that word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pat Sajak. I appreciate that. But yeah, like part of the problem that both you and I have as historians when it comes to LGBTQ history is the nebulousness, right? We're dealing with this, I don't want to call it a black hole, but it's like this universe in and of itself where things can connect, but it's so hard to grasp them, to get them to connect. And part of that is because of the secrecy of it all. And it's sad, but when you can find it, it's cherishable, it's wonderful. And what's sickening is that people will play on that and they'll create something in a world of social media now, they'll create something that is completely bogus. The world will, especially the LGBTQ world, will grasp onto that and say, look at this, this is wonderful. And then it's, it's completely bogus. And it's because it's all secret and you didn't talk about it. It was a family disgrace if it occurred much like mental illness. So you hid those things. And so you don't get those experiences. And that's sad in so many ways. 
we will grasp onto these things. And, and I say that as being part of the community that will grasp onto these things because we're like, look at this common, look at this common person thing that we didn't even know existed. And, and here it is. And this love of two people and see, this is, this is timeless and you can't destroy. And then it, it's all bogus. It's a lie. It, it's one more stab in the back. If anyway, I keep bringing conversation down. It's important because again, I'm talking about just looking and doing and what do you get? It's fun being on that side of not knowing enough to do a search, but not knowing exactly what's out there. So I'm looking at the wild blue yonder of Google. And another thing that I found was a sexual minorities archive, which I was like, what? I was super excited. How is that? It's one of the longest continually operating archives of LGBT material in the United States, which holds the Leslie Feinberg Library, a collection of the late writer's personal research materials. And mind you, this is, I'm reading it straight off the Google search. There's a little box and they're like pulling up information from Wikipedia. Where is this? It is in Holyoke, Massachusetts. So yeah. It, so bizarre. Yeah. And they have a digital transgender archive. Wow. Is that accessible by the public, like the digital archive? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking here. I'll share the link with Chad, and then we'll make sure to share this link in the actual like podcast notes. But this is like, like the plethora of information you can find if you were to try and diversify your search. But then I was thinking like, okay, let me see what about this... Fascinating. And, but these, again, we are talking about archives and a lot of folks are intimidated because the... Yeah, nothing else. Please, people, like search out archives. Like you would be surprised at what you can find on there. You don't even have to like visit the place sometimes. It can be exactly like the sexual minority archives with the digital transgender archive where you're seeing some of the things that are that they've digitized and you have access to. It's it's so amazing that you can be able to do this. Anyway, keep going. So there's this is what I'm looking at. This these are the things like these are the public history outlets that are available. And uh, what I wanted to know was how does LGBTQ history present in these public history spaces? That's because, a really interesting question. Because there's so many ways that you can look at history, right? And recently there was a TikTok video who I can't remember the name of the account or the person who was talking, but it was two young Black men and they were discussing how they were tired of seeing the, the way that Blackness is portrayed in movies right now, which are, if it's not the civil rights story, if it's not a story of suffering, I'm paraphrasing what they said, but he's, I don't want to see this anymore. Hey, fucking men! I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. As an LGBTQ person, I hear you about LGBTQ, not necessarily about Blackness, but I can totally get it. I get you. That was my drunkenness. Keep going. And so two young men, and they were talking about, why can't we get a movie with like Black wizards? You know, <laughs> Why can't we have movies with a sci-fi movie and a Black protagonist? Or gay. Just the way How that, about Black and gay? That's the thing though, right? This idea of relating to people on their intersection. What I want people to get is, and this is what I've said, and I think I might have, I might have said this to you, what people don't know is that Maria and I have known each other for, what, seven years at least? Ten years? I'm going to say... At least ten years. Ten years, yeah. So what we've had lots of text communication because if you know me, that 
I don't actually have conversations with people on the phone because that's hard and weird. Who does that? Um, this is where I'm like a millennial and I'm like, why are you calling me? That's weird. So if you're not my mom, don't call me unless you forewarned me that you're going to call me and we've set up a time that this is going to happen. All of my best friends are like, yes, that bitch is totally like that, you motherfuckers. And so don't think that he's not because I have declined calls for every single one of my best friends. There are people out there who are judging me. You know what? I hate people. So <laughs> See, and I, and I do it from a social anxiety <laughs> point. I'm just like, I'm still out of practice from using a phone for calling. Well, and I don't like phone calls. Oh, and if you're planning on calling me on FaceTime, just out of the blue. Yeah, we don't do that. Let's just go. know that is a hell fucking no. That is the 21st century of showing up at somebody's house unannounced. (laughs) Anyway, the point that I'm bringing up is that with Maria, and I'm pretty sure that I've said this to you at some point, which is, and I appreciate this when people say this to me, which is I understand to the extent that I can understand. Like I get it to the point that I can get it. And I understand there's aspects of your life that I'm never going to be able to get because I am not a Latinx indigenous woman. Like I'm not. I don't know what it's like to go through your life. I don't have your past. And the same thing is true for you. You're not a cisgender white man, right? You're not cis, white, gay, male. That's just not like, how do you know what my life has been like growing up in Iowa in the backwoods of nowhere in a town that nobody's heard of? Trust me, you haven't heard of it unless you know me, in which case you've heard of it. And then you still may not know where it's located. You might as well just throw a dart at a map of Iowa. <laughs> just be like, best guess right there. You know where I'm from, and you probably still could not pinpoint it on a map. I'm desperately going through my brain going, oh my gosh, where, what does it sound like? <laughs> we'll talk about that at a later, like potentially later. There's a whole experience inside of that that most people are not going to get, which is the same thing, which is true for you. There's a whole experience that you have based on where you're at. The reason I bring this up is because this is also part of the problem with LGBTQ history in general. It's not slave history. It's not white people history. It's not Chicago history. It's not New York City history. It's not San Francisco history. All of those places have their own history of LGBTQ and the experience thereof. Minneapolis does as well. And there are these places that people can go and it's all different, not the same. And we don't have a collective that's similar. We can't say, and I hate to use slave history because even that changes from plantation to plantation and state to state. Talked before about being a slave in Texas is not the same as being a slave in Louisiana, which is not the same as being a slave in St. Dominique, which is not the same as being a slave someplace else. Like it's so completely different. And even then when we talk about slavery, are you a black slave or... Are you a mestizo slave? Are you, and that's the experience of slavery is different. And the experience of LGBTQ throughout the world is completely different. And this is what I said at the beginning of it. This is part of the problem. And there's no, I don't have a grandparent who's experienced life even similar to me that I can go to and say, what, how do I deal with this? I don't have a parent who's like my parents. I love my parents. My parents are very supportive. I don't talk about my parents often, but they're very supportive of my life and what I do. And they don't have any clue of what I've experienced or what I've gone through. They don't know the trauma. They don't know what it's like to walk down a street in the middle of Dallas and feel 
my partner go grab my arm and say, we need to head back to the car. I have a gun there. Like that's not something that people experience on a regular basis. FYI, Maria didn't know that actually, that's an actual memory. So she's reacting in her own way. (laughs) I'm quiet and listening because it's just, what do you say to the experiences of people who, like you said, there's no, there's an understanding that only goes so deep right? There's an understanding that can only, it's like scuba diving, right? You only have enough oxygen for a certain amount of feet, but you're not practicing diving deeper because you just don't have that experience. That's a good analogy actually. But even then, let's go further. There's snorkeling versus scuba diving. You can experience snorkeling and it's wonderful and it's great. And so you then go to scuba diving and then you have that experience, like what you were saying, there's only so far you can go before you're out of your, literally out of your depth. And how many people have done, like you said, like they've enjoyed snorkeling and they think, oh, this is great. This is what it is. And then they try scuba diving and they're like, oh shit, this is, <laughs> this is deep and it's scary. And I, this is not what I signed up for. Fuck this. Because that was my experience. Someone was like, you should totally try. And I was like, you know what? It took me two hours to get okay with snorkeling. I'm pretty sure I'm not okay with yeah like that's how it can be that's how it is for people and culture and and identity it's that surface level we're joking around about mimosas and brunch and i guarantee there's people who are like yeah that's the fun part of gayness that's why i love gay people but then you talk about things like having closed door parties because i think chad and i were talking about this beforehand but we're talking about the differences between stonewall actually no we might have been talking about it now i'm not sure anymore But Stonewall being a place for those who are marginalized within the marginalized and then having these upscale cocktail parties behind closed doors, but yet also being what they are because of class and because of privilege, because of all these other things. Or the experience of like me working in the same place as another gay man. So we were talking and worked in the same place, had to enter the same way and I walk in and I just assume people automatically know that I'm gay based on my voice. So that means that if I'm just walking and I'm not talking, then nobody really knows that I'm gay. So I can quote unquote pass. But my coworker slash friend at the time definitely had a bit of a, a walk. So it was like a catwalk walk, if you will, right? like a model walk. There was definitely some sashaying going on and would get catcalled. So the same way that I would go, they would go and they present as male. This is not female. And they would get whistled and catcalled by the same people that I had to walk past when I did not have that experience. So even though we're both gay, our experiences working in the same place with the same people, walking by the same restaurants was completely different because I present quote unquote without actually talking or waving my hands around because if you watch me talk, like I'm gay or European even like in the United States I present as gay but when I'm in Europe I don't present as anything more than just a European dude talking and I happen to have an American accent no one when I was traveling through Europe ever expected me of being gay because I presented as European I've had several friends who have spent time in Europe and they came back and they're like you're European this is so weird for me as I'm watching you I used to think that you were gay but really you're presenting as European to me And I'm like, exactly. But in the United States, how Europeans present is gay. Yeah, or at least that's the whole, that's the societal consumption of 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's very interesting. And his experience when we were working at the same place was completely different than my experience, all because of his one, like that walk. Like the one characteristic of their persona, like their person, their being. They did not sound gay. I sounded gayer than they did. Well, when we spoke, I sounded gayer. When we walked, he looked quote unquote gayer. He got the cat calls and he got the, all of that. And it wasn't just once, it was multiple times because he mentioned it multiple times. So it's, it's very interesting. And that's part of the problem with the history of LGBTQ. And it's not, we're not the typical marginalized society. This isn't one generation passing it on to the next generation. We don't have grandparents that are necessarily gay. And you have that older generation talking to the younger generation. That's not, that's frowned upon because clearly if you're a homosexual or a lesbian of any shape, way, or form, then all you're doing is preying upon the younger generation. And again, that's yeah. because of, of, of how we've over-sexualized homosexuals, gay people, queer people. I'll, go ahead. And you just mentioned if you're gay and you're a lesbian and you're older and having this relationship. So imagine the rest, like the bisexual, transgender, queer, asexual, pansexual, like all uh, the rest of the community, the first two groups within the LGBTQ plus community already feel this way of not being able to build cross-generational community, intergenerational community, or transgenerational community. What does the rest of the community feel like? How do they- How do you even connect with a younger generation? And where do you find them? And, And that's the thing for me. It's what if that does exist, but because we don't know what we don't know, like- it's, yes. it's just like compounding yeah, among it's itself. Secret within the LGBTQ community because it has to be. We've been, and I, again, I'm going to speak for the LGBT community, but we've been so persecuted for so many different reasons throughout the centuries, throughout millennia, if you will. And I hate using that term, but it's appropriate that everything has to be secret. So how can you find it? And how easy then is it? To mock that, how easy is it to make something up? And how hard is it to be able to verify that that's truth or not truth? I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out what is available, what is out there? What are we looking at that is for LGBTQ plus remembering or memorializing or anything like that? And our good friend Wikipedia busted out a list. And we know how many people love Wikipedia. They love it. But yeah. in this case, it, it really is just looking at a list of places and it, the article itself. I'm going to interrupt you because I want people to understand you and I are, are not coming from a historical perspective when we're looking at Wikipedia. We're coming from this is most likely what people are going to be looking at or looking for or using this forum. So I want people to understand that that's, while you and I are respected historians and we, we love what we do, back to what we do, we also understand that the common person is going to be moving to Wikipedia and that's usually one of the first things that's pulled up in any search. And also, I this whole time I'm doing this, this search on Google from the very real position of being somebody who is not part of the community that we are talking about. So it's like, where do I go? What do I look for? And I Googled, I think the original search was LGBTQ monuments or something to that effect. But then I found that Wikipedia had a page of list of LGBT monuments and memorials. And I just wanted to see what was available in the U.S. And I found a common theme. There's the 
Matachine Steps in Los Angeles, which I believe are staircase. There, it's an outdoor staircase dedicated to the Matachine Society in 2012 in memory of Harry Hay, who co-founded the, the gay rights group. And then it goes on to describe the group. And FYI, for anybody who's listening, Harry Hay is monumental in the gay male community, if not the LGBTQ community. So Harry Hay is, no, if you study anything about LGBTQ, about Harry Hay, go on. The next one is the Matthew Shepard Human Rights Triangle. There's Harvey Milk Plaza, the National AIDS Memorial. Okay, hold on, stop. Because I want to make sure that we put these in context. Matthew Shepard was found beaten in, I believe it was Utah. He was a, he was a student at University of Wyoming, you're right. Wyoming, Wyoming, not Utah. Okay, thank you. So he was, that's a whole episode, but Matthew Shepard was a turning point also for LGBTQ, especially men in general. And the beatings that occurred, he became a common occurrence. Now there's a lot of um, controversy around all of that. Some people suspect that he was within the cocaine and drug smuggling, yada. Regardless, it was a turning point for LGBTQ people within the 1990s. So Matthew Shepard is, is very well known. Harvey Milk is a San Francisco counselor who was assassinated. He was well on his way to becoming much more well known within the state of California when he was assassinated, but he actually was assassinated. You can see a movie about him. It's called Milk with Sean Penn. It's a well done, I own the movie. It's a well done movie. I don't know how accurate it is to Harvey Milk's life, but Harvey Milk, Harry Hay, Matthew Shepard are, are three very well-known gay men within the LGBTQ community because of those turning points. But keep on going, I'm sorry. I'm glad you are putting a little bit like of the context of these initial ones. And there's a reason why I want to list them and then I want to go back. But so you have Harvey Milk Plaza, you have the National AIDS Memorial Grove in San Francisco and the Pink Triangle Park in San Francisco. These are all located in California, right? And Pink Triangle Park is a park that is the first permanent freestanding memorial in America or in the United States dedicated to the thousands of persecuted homosexuals or gay LGBTQ plus people in Nazi Germany during the Holocaust of World War II. And then I'm sure that you're going to find like the pattern in this. There's Legacy Walk in Chicago. It celebrates LGBT contributions to world history and culture. It's the world's only outdoor museum walk and youth educated program dedicated to combating anti-gay bullying. Mm. There's the Transgender Memorial Garden in St. Louis. This is the first time I saw that St. Louis was attached to the LGBTQ plus community. And I was the Transgender Memorial Garden of all things, right? That's why it floored me that St. Louis, Missouri when you mentioned it as a, as like a place for LGBTQ plus community in the U.S. And most people would not expect St. Louis, but there is a very much a flourishing community within St. Louis. And then we moved to New York. There's the Gay Liberation Monument. There's the, there's Stonewall, the national monument that is Stonewall. There's the LGBTQ Memorial. There's the Marsha P. Johnson Memorial Fountain. In Ohio, there's a historic marker uh, dedicated to Natalie Clifford Barney. And she is, she was an expatriate of the U.S. to Paris. And I had, I just had her tab up. She's a U.S. playwright, poet, and novelist who lived uh, between 1876 and 1972. But I, I thought that was interesting because this is the first time where we get to somebody who isn't an activist, 
yeah. who hasn't been a victim of crime against LGBTQ plus somebody in the community. Yes, yes, I love it. Or who isn't part of that AIDS conversation or persecution conversation. And I was like, damn, it took us to Ohio to get to that point. <laughs> Which is almost as bizarre as Missouri, but keep going. Yeah, and then there's, in Tennessee, there's the Penny Campbell historical marker and- Tennessee? Tennessee. And it's, this is in Nashville. It's named in honor of LGBT activist, Penny Campbell. So again, this is a marker, a, a, like some kind of remembrance or monument or memorial dedicated to somebody who is, has to do it in an activist way. Yep. Then in Tennessee as well, there's the jungle and Juanita's historical marker. These are two bars that are popular, that were popular with gay men in the 1960s through to the 1980s. They were raided by the police in 1963, and the, the sites were dedicated in December of 2018. But I'm like, okay, and this is in Nashville. So that happened, so if it was 1963, just to keep things in a chronological order, that six years before the 1969 Stonewall riots. So that would be, that would be about right, I would expect that to happen. Okay, keep going. Um, in Texas, in, at Galveston Island, there's the Pink Dolphin Monument. And I'm going to get back to this one at the end. Okay. So in Washington, D.C., there's the Dr. Franklin E. Khomeini House, who's a Frank Khomeini who's a gay activist as well. And then that's it for the United States. So there's, but here's the thread, right? Like the monuments and memorials listed that are available through Wikipedia, through a site that's accessible to anybody who just decides to kind of go on Wikipedia and Google this or, or Wiki this or whatever you do on Wikipedia. And you just, they're either sites of tragedy, they're sites of, they're somber, they're solemn. Even in the activists that are, that are memorialized, that idea of struggle, of the grinding, of trying to make way and move forward for an entire community that's made up of a whole lot of intersections of people. And it was just, it, that reminded me of why I started talking about this, that TikTok video that I saw of those two young men who were talking about wanting to see something different. And it really struck me that there are so many communities that have been looking for the ways in which they're represented not just for the sake of representation and not just in these ways where they there's a, a respect or an honor put to struggles and strife, but to the joy of things, right? Yes. To the common human experience of things, right? There's no, there's, th that's why I, I don't know what they're going to do with the National LGBT Museum at New York, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of information on the gay rights movement, the liberation movements. There's going to be a lot of information on different activists, on the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and moving forward. There's going to be a lot of that conversation because it already just exists and it saturates so much of, if you're not talking about gay people and queer eye and brunch, then you're usually talking about the LGBTQ plus community in these very re-traumatizing and somber ways. And I want to think that there's going to be a point where maybe somebody just makes a historical marker for LGBTQ joy and like success. And there's no preface, there's no precursor of this existing struggle. It's just they were awesome for the sake of awesomeness, right? That's 
for me as an LGBTQ man, like one of the things that I've mentioned throughout this episode is that when I was looking, I am a historian and I'm looking for myself. So as a white man, I'm looking for other white men. And I, I am tired of finding the stories because they're so, like they're so prevalent. Finding those stories of sadness, defeat, of submission. And what I want to find, what I want to see, which I see in Trick, is a story of hope, a story of love. Like, my life is no different than anybody else's. My ambitions are no different than I want to be me in a world that doesn't want me to be me. That's not uncommon. Like, really, that's not uncommon. Even cis straight men have that same problem like being them in a world that doesn't want them to be them. I want that celebrated. Why does it have to be a gay man who's died, a gay man who's assassinated, a gay man who's beaten to death, a gay man who's, or a lesbian of the same way. We think she's a lesbian. Or why can we not celebrate the fact that this is the first lesbian couple in this city that lived until they died and that this city loved them as part of the community and they knew and they didn't care and it wasn't talked about and it didn't matter and they lived a happy life and they they died they weren't killed they weren't assassinated they weren't it wasn't cancer it wasn't like it wasn't this horrendous traumatizing story and when i look everywhere that's what i see i don't want to be traumatized over again i want to know that at 47, I can fall in love again and live a wonderful life with another man and he not be killed or I not be killed. Like, weird. It's great. And I go back to saying this is the lesbian and gay part of LGBTQ+. And I'm going to, I'd be completely remiss if I don't recognize that while this podcast will be, or this episode will be airing for Pride Month and the, the ones to come, we're actually recording the week after a National Transgender Day of Remembrance. And, and I've tried to make it so that in the last couple of years, I at least know what is going on with the transgender community in the United States and very particularly with the Black Indigenous people of color who identify. Which if anybody looks at the statistics, like I mentioned before, yeah, it's not. That's ethnic and cultural identity and identity based off of race, I guess, where race is imposed upon people, but that's not even including economic situation, like the economic situation of a person. And I just, like, you're hearing you talk about the need to to see as a uh, white cis gay man, this desire to see something that is reminiscent and recalls and can bring up a history that isn't tied to trauma and tragedy. And then I I think about the intersections and I start overlaying things and I just, it's a lot. I'm not even articulating. Yeah, I'm not even, I I can't even articulate just how much I feel it. And so it goes back to, I'm scuba diving and I'm 30 feet in and I recognize that there's so much more to go and that I'm not even remotely close to being, well, adapt to dive deeper. I can't. It's the whole thing of nebulousness within the LGBTQ history. It's, you can't define it, even if you want to define it. It's hard to pinpoint. Sometimes it's more local than it is national. Even some of the 
monuments you mentioned are more local than national, right? If you study LGBTQ history, then you know about Harvey Milk, but if you're raised in, I don't know, Arkansas, and you move to Dallas, you there may be no reason for you to know Harvey Milk. It didn't impact you. That was someone who was out in California that had no, in, no, no impact in your life. Or you're from Arkansas and you moved to Orlando. Again, no impact on your life. You don't need to know who Harvey Milk is. And I, that's all part and parcel of it, right? Like the LGBTQ identity is intersected with so many other identities that if you're Latinx, that's its own experience. If you're indigenous, regardless of where you're at in the world, that's going to define your experience. If you're <clears throat> Russian in Russia currently, that's going to define your experience. Who you are, where you're at, what you're doing, that's going to define your experience. And it's not, it's not a, a global, while it's a global identity, it's, it's not a global experience. Even in the United States, even in Canada, even in the United Kingdom, it's not a comp, like it's not the same experience, which is part of what makes it so difficult to define the history of it. And then you look back, like going back to the beginning of this episode, and you look at the Greeks and you look at the Romans, and again, it's not the same experience, right? Like it's you can't look at that and go, yep, that was a gay relationship, or yep, that was a pedophilic relationship, but mm -hmm. it's not. It wasn't considered pedophilia. And same thing with the Romans. And then then you expand that. And one of the things, like I didn't mention this, but one of the things within Brazilian gay community is, again, who's the one who's doing the penetrating, regardless of what orifice it is, who's doing the penetrating? Because then you potentially may not be gay, as they say, mouth, right? Doesn't matter who it's attached to. So there's this nuance within gay community and gay history and, and the gay world, all of that. And people may look at that and go poo-poo, like whatever, but it's so true. Like how, do, like how does an individual community define it? Because we can look at the Aztecs and say, this is how the Aztecs define it. But as you talked about before, Aztecs were made up of a, a multitude of indigenous tribes. One tribe may see it this way and another tribe may see it that way. And we're saying like, but Aztecs saw it this way. I was going to say, that's my pet peeve. Like doing the whole like Aztecs. Like, no, you could say the triple alliance. You could say the Nahuas, but you can't just say the Aztecs. And, and that's a great point. That's a great point. You can't just say the LGBTQ plus community because it's, it is, it, it, like you said, it's a global identity, but not a global experience. And that is pivotal. And intersection has so much to do with that. It has, and even person like you you do intersection and you splice it even more to personal experience because somebody who has maybe the same background the same upbringing the same has lived through the similar situations isn't necessarily going to have even the even just the perspective of the same experience yeah. so i i want to end with the pink dolphin monument in galveston yes talk about that because that fascinates me talk and this is directly from the website. It's pinkdolphinmonument.com. And they have six uh, tabs in their menu. One about the, their, so it's a statue. Okay. And it's a statue of a pink dolphin. And they have- Which kind of makes me happy, but keep going. They have a, a menu item, it's burials. I haven't looked at that one. Contributors, monuments, events, or news. But I want to really talk about the monument itself. So it's a kind of a tiny, but I'm sure it's not tiny in real life, but it looks kind of small pink dolphin. 
And it, it's made from, I believe it, they said it, or the Wikipedia article. Where is that again? Where is this located? That is, that's at Galveston Island here in oh, Texas. Oh, we have to on our one on one of our Texas road trips. Okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's a public monument. It is made from red sandstone that's sourced from the Texas coast. So it's made from the same materials. And I think this is really poetic that exists in the area. And I'm just like, I love this. It's dedicated to celebrating gender and sexual minority communities. Uh, the, the artist is I, Jojo, the writer, because there's a there's a, like a short poem written uh, on there, is Sarah Sloan. And the scientist Frank Prega created the monument and donated it to our Epiphel Park slash East Beach on Galveston Island, Texas. And again, this is from the website. So I'm, I'm reading actually the paragraph that's talking about the statue. To further the park's, so this was done to further the park's mission and contribute to honoring diversity on the island. Carved the monument's central figure of a pink dolphin from red sandstone quarried nearby Corpus Christi, Texas. Inspired by Galveston's celebratory and festive history, they borrowed the image of the pink dolphin from Galveston's iconic Pink Dolphin Tavern, as well as the logo of the Pink Posse, a group open to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, allied, pansexual, two-spirit, which briefly talked about, but activists on the island. The main statue, which was named Sandy by the park staff, so Sandy the dolphin, is the approximate size of a small dolphin. So it's 36 inches or three feet by 16 inches by 13 inches. So really small. And the statue itself is supported by a five-foot pedestal designed to create an impression of a dolphin jumping overhead. And it is like cute little like jumping dolphin. It's adorable. The column pedestal holding up the dolphin reproduces the column supporting the open air pavilion that houses the statue. And a poem accompanies the statue. And so here's the poem. Who is the poem from again? The poem is written, I believe it said the writer was Sarah Sloan. Okay. So here's the poem. The path that led you here through giant gold headdresses shaking in the wind below a long calligraphy of stars finds you standing in r.a apeffel park lit by dreams of dolphins rising pink arches in the dark love it i i i don't know that i yeah. read it and i just the whole thing everything about it celebrating gender celebrating celebrating i just i just want to emphasize that gender and sexual minority communities I celebrating and then they with so much there's so much intention they took red sandstone from quarries in the area they literally took materials of the earth from that area to commemorate the activists that are LGBTQIA P or two two spirit activists on the island they themselves are like the materia for fostering com that community in that on Galveston Island. So I just looked it up and I completely agree with you. And if you can, if you're near a computer, so obviously if you're driving, please do not stop. Don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look it up on your phone. If you're going to, please pull over and stop. But if you're near a computer, you should look it up. It's actually, I agree with you. It's really cute. Like I, I love it. It's very unique. And FYI, pink dolphins do actually exist in the world. So this isn't something that they just completely created. Like it, it, it is actually out in the world. Um, yeah, it's really cute. I agree. 
what I found the most poetic about on top of the red sandstone and the, the dolphin imagery, like dolphins bring so much joy and they are the closest, like they are the most intelligent or they're often attributed as the most intelligent species after humans, all of those things. But then I considered, oh Lord, I already forgot what I was about to say because I was so moved by it. Damn it. Let me think. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I, as we were talking and I mentioned the, the scuba diving metaphor, when I was reading the list, and I remembered why I wanted to talk about the pink dolphin monument. I was like, and one more thing, pink dolphin, you know, dolphins are great swimmers and they can dive to depths and they can, they bring like joy. They have an experience like no other. And I'm just like, man, what a perfect monument for a way to describe an experience. I will never understand, but I can appreciate the beauty of its existence. And I was just like, that was it. That was it. That's what I wanted to say. That was the end point. That's perfect. I think it's, I want people to get, you should look it up. If we've said anything in here, you should definitely research it some more. We will have some links to different places and we'll have some of the books that I, I spoke from. So the Boswell theory based on John Boswell, homosexuality and history. Again, that's an old book, but yeah, you should go where your heart leads you. If you're LGBTQ and you're part of the community, we love you. We, we want you. We celebrate you. Be you in a world that doesn't always necessarily celebrate who you are. We celebrate who you are and we love you. We want you here. We want you to contribute. Even if what you contribute seems like all you're doing is just existing. You're contributing. Um, thank you for that. And I just want to say, I want to see your joy. Mm. I think that's so important. Yeah. And yep. if history isn't going to do that as that favor, I just want to see your joy. Yep. Yeah. Live your joy, live it. And that is history in and of itself. Yeah. So we will go more into individual topics as we move forward. And we have some things lined up for you. We don't really want to, but we've got some stuff talked about. Maria has foreshadowed a couple of topics, but we want to leave it open so that you come back for more and you discover what there is. This isn't a limited topic. We may come back to it at another month, but we really like the fact that this is LGBTQ Pride Month. And so we're going to explore that for the next couple episodes at the very least. And we revisit it later, but check out what your local city has to see what kind of monuments there are, what how you can interact with that. There may be individuals within your community. Please let us know about those individuals within your community because again, a lot of LGBTQ history is local, regional, statewide, and not necessarily national. So if you know someone that you feel like we should know about, let us know. Anything else, Maria? That's good. I'm super excited to dive into this topic for this month. And I don't know, I'm just looking forward to it. I'm really excited. In the future, in the next at least three episodes, bring your mimosas, your wine, your cider, your beer, whatever it is that you choose to drink, tequila, if that is your choice, vodka, if that's also brandy, if you're all like, e -e -e. or shishi. Exactly. <laughs> Listen to this in the evening or not. If you drink brandy at three o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to say anything. Just don't do it regularly. Please respond. Please drink responsibly. And we will see you next week when we go a little deeper, a little more specific on the topic. This was just an intro into it all. And we'll talk a little bit more. I think the next three episodes, is that not correct? Three episodes, we're going to go a little deeper. I believe at least three episodes, maybe four, we can 
fit four episodes in for the month, yeah. uh, but definitely the next three episodes. Okay. So definitely the next three, maybe four. And we will, we love you, drink responsibly, and we hope that you return. We want you to return. So that's why we want you to drink responsibly. Be safe, be happy. We'll catch you next time. Be Your joy. Yes. Great. That's the plan.